One of my most vivid memories of my dad, I was 13 years old. We were walking up the hill from our house to our church, where my dad was going to lead my middle school youth group session that day, and I was so proud that he was going to be doing that. And I remember as we walked up the hill that day, I asked him a question. I said, Dad, do you think Jesus will come back in my lifetime? Now, you might think of that as sort of an odd question to just sort of, you know, spring on your father, but this was the nature of our relationship. My, my brother and my dad, they connected. Their intimacy was around sports, and I connected with my dad. Our intimacy together was based on theology and, and the Bible and philosophy and the Narnia Chronicles and Paul Tillich and everything in between. So I asked him, Dad, do you think Jesus will come back in my lifetime? And he thought about that for a second. There was this pregnant pause. And then he said, I don't know. Maybe it's you, Matt. Now, why did I tell you the story? Did I tell you the story to uh, alarm you? Uh, <laughs> perhaps you're worried now that I have some very grandiose ideas about myself. Rest assured, I am quite certain I am not the second coming of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's not what he was saying to me. What he was saying to me is that you have the light of Christ in you already. And it's your call to shine that, to bear that light, to birth that light into the world. Where is Christ? In you. That was his message that day. And I soon found that, you know, that takes a little training. You know, that takes some practice of going beyond the basics of just being, you know, a nice, polite, decent person. There's, there's a little more to it than just those basics. Fast forward, when I was 18 years old, the day after senior prom, I tested for my black belt in martial arts. Did I mention it was the day after senior prom? It's like the worst timing ever. And it was a two or three hour ordeal, it was outside, it was back in the woods, it was a sort of secret thing, and I got pretty beat up and banged up by the end. I was messy and sweaty and dirty. I could barely stand up, but I remember the instructor tying that new belt, that crisp new belt around my waist, and he looked at me and he said, now you begin. And I thought, now I begin? I've been working on this thing for five years, which was like more than a quarter of my life at that point. Now I begin? And I soon began to appreciate that what he was saying is that getting a black belt or getting a degree of any kind simply means you have mastered the basics. That's why we call a graduation a commencement, not a conclusion because it means you are commencing, you are beginning. You now know the basics, and it's time to go out and live this stuff. The Sermon on the Mount is sort of like that. It, it is not just basic stuff. It is, it is for those who want to go deeper, for those who want to reach higher, to take their faith to the next level. For starters, you had to climb a mountain just to hear the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Sermon on the Mount follows Jesus' first preaching tour. And in that preaching tour, the sermon was only seven words long. Repent, which means turn around. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the entire sermon as reported in the Gospel of Matthew. And it doesn't seem that anybody complained that it was too short. Nobody ever complains that the sermon is short, right? In my history as a preacher, nobody has ever come up to me after a short sermon to say, you know, Matt, I'm really disappointed. I needed more from you. I could, I could have used another 10 minutes like that. Never happens. So I'm guessing nobody complained at Jesus' very short sermon announcing the presence of the kingdom that was coming in through him. Jesus' next sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it's a bit longer. <laughs> there was a little more to say. There were some details. Jesus went beyond the basics and was giving this exposition of what the kingdom of God looks like, what love looks like, what it looks like when we share our light in the world. This is what it means. This is what Christ looks like in the world. And Jesus uses this rhetorical device throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He says frequently, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, this you know, sort of basic instruction, common conventional wisdom, but I say to you something else. And we just heard one of those instances in the scripture that Christian just read. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. Don't murder. Everybody, no murdering today. Do not murder. That's the basic uh, law. But Jesus says, but I say to you, don't be angry. Don't even insult somebody else, because if you do, that puts you in danger of the fire of hell. So, like, yeah, don't murder. Okay, yeah, got that. I, I promise not to murder anyone today. Perfect, got it. Don't be angry. Ooh, that's a little more challenging. That is definitely taking this thing to a different level entirely. In other words, don't settle for, you know, garden variety, decency, and niceness. Don't pat yourself on the back for not doing bad things. Don't get to the end of your day and think, okay, well, I, I didn't murder anyone today. Uh, I didn't commit adultery. I didn't steal anything. I didn't salivate over my neighbor's new car. Wow, look at me. Look how shiny I am. You're going to need sunglasses just to look at me and my righteousness for all the bad things I did not do. Jesus says, no, we need to take it a little further than that. Here at this church, we aspire to be an anti-racist community. An anti-racist community, which is an ongoing journey because there's always more to do and more to learn on that front. We've had trainings and book studies and conversations and small groups. We, we just had an equitable dinner last month. And anti-racism, I think, is important for everyone, but especially for white folks. And in my experience of being one for half a century now, <laughs> it's fairly clear to me that most white people view racism as doing or saying bad things, doing or saying obviously racist things. I mean, that's how I understood racism for most of my life. And so long as we don't say or do those obviously bad things, well, then we're not racist. As long as we don't wave a Confederate flag or 
use racial slurs, as long as we're nice and kind and polite to people of color, and you know, just generally uh, imagine ourselves to be not racist and colorblind, there's that word. Obviously, we've got it all figured out. Well, just as patting ourselves on the back for not being a murderer is not very impressive, and it blocks us from acknowledging and doing the deeper work of encountering our own anger, so is claiming to be not racist, you know, maybe not very impressive either, and blocks and prevents us from doing that deeper work of looking at our own biases and seeing how racism infects our culture and our institutions and finds its way into each of us in different ways and doing that work of confronting it. That's the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist. How can you let your light shine a little brighter this week? What might you do differently? How might people see the possibility of a different world emerging through you? Maybe it's making that conscious effort to move from being not racist to being anti-racist. Maybe it's simply talking less and listening more and asking more questions as we're engaging in conversation with others. Maybe it's lifting people up, blessing people, encouraging people, complimenting people, fanning the flame of the light in somebody else because, you know, we're all a little haggard these days and need to be reminded that the light of God is there in us. Sometimes pouring more holy light into the world is more a matter of removing obstacles that block it. When we hear Jesus talking about not putting our light under a bushel, maybe that bushel is like just what goes on in our head. Our own thoughts, our own fears, our own sense of inadequacy, our self-criticism, whatever it is that keeps us from stepping up and sharing our light. Sometimes those bushels are negative or painful experiences that might cause us to hold back for our own safety, which might actually be the right thing to do from time to time. The good news is the light is still there. The light is always there. Jesus doesn't say, you know, step it up to these new ways of experiencing and practicing the kingdom, and then you'll get some light. No, he says, you are the light, and here's how you hold it up and shine it and share it in these ways. Don't hold back. One of the many gifts of the black church, and there are many, but one of the great gifts of the black church is music. And music that is not only uplifting and vibrant and rich, but music that is designed to encourage people to shine their light even in a world that is hostile and often dangerous. To encourage people to shine their light. And frankly, I have a bit less experience with that kind of courageous faith that we sing about. Similarly, Matthew's gospel was written for a persecuted group who were fearful about being too public with their faith. And rightly so, it was risky. And there, Jesus is saying, Go ahead, shine your light, live in these ways, encourage others, bless others.
allow your light and the light of others to shine. It's different now in terms of being at risk, particularly for someone like me. I can say almost anything anywhere and be taken seriously. I can hold my wife's hand anywhere in the world without fear. I can get pulled over by police and not feel like my life is about to be at risk. As a person without disabilities, I can move about in this world in basically any building and get around, get to wherever I want to be without even thinking about it. And for me, that means I have a response ability to shine light, especially when things are not right. And today, that might mean, perhaps, speaking out when people say that queer and trans folk are harmful to children, which is something that's out there in the airwaves and in public discourse. Trans and queer people are not a threat to children. Creating a world where people are not free to be who they are, that is a threat to children. We gotta shine some light on that. A drag queen reading stories to children in a library is not a threat to children. But tools of death designed to kill many people very quickly, well, that is a threat. Why are we talking about that? We gotta shine some light on that one. Black history that does not ignore the contributions of queer people or ignore the Black Lives Matter movement is not a threat to children or young people. But ignoring or erasing history, well, that is a threat. That is a risk to young people. We gotta shine some light on that too. Did you know that science doesn't know exactly what light is? If you look up what is light on Google, you'll get some very interesting things about electromagnetic fields and photons and speed, but you'll also find a point where they go, huh, we're not exactly sure what light is or how it works or what it's made of. What we do know is we can't live without it. We do know that light is not a thing. It is a process, it is energy, it is movement. And I would like to suggest, as I close, that people of light will also move and travel lightly. That those of us who are on the way of Jesus would hold this world lightly which isn't to say we don't take it seriously and, and the harms that can come at people, that we don't take that seriously. It means simply that we hold the world unpossessively and gently and carefully. Light, the fastest force in the universe, cannot be contained. Being light means being free. To follow Jesus is to feel light, which is an act of resistance against all the burdens the world wants to pile on our shoulders. It was Jesus, remember, who said, my burden is light. Will 
Jesus come back in our lifetime? It's too late. The light of Christ is already in you, in all of us. Our job is only to let it shine. Amen? Amen.